And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am very, very happy to be sitting opposite my colleague and friend, Dr. Art Sear, who has been a frequent guest to the morning show for more than two decades and can hardly imagine the program without him. And I'm really happy that we can now have our first visit in 2024. I don't know how January slipped past me. So here we are uh, in in mid-February with lots and lots of interesting things to talk about. Professor Sear, uh, in addition to uh, all he does as a teacher, is also uh, a columnist whose work appears in newspapers all across the country, including uh, locally here uh, in, the, in the Kenosha News, and also author of After the Cold War and many other really, really interesting articles. And uh, I always appreciate the opportunity to uh, experience his uh, articulate uh, expertise when it comes to a wide range of different issues. Professor Sherry, welcome you back to The Morning Show. Well, thank you, Greg. You're always so gracious and upbeat. (laughs) It's good for me to be here. (laughs) Good to have you here. I hope you had a lovely Valentine's Day. Ah, yes, indeed. And the holiday season was fine, and it was nice to have something of a break, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. So Merry Christmas, by yeah. the way, and Happy New Year. <laughs> happy Valentine's Day. Yes, happy everything, happy everything. So uh, I, I do want to mention that uh, one of your most recent columns is how I found out a bit of news that I, I don't know how it slipped past me, but somehow I had not heard the news about uh, King Charles and uh, how he is undergoing uh, treatment for cancer and your. You're, so, honestly, literally, your column was the way I learned about that. And uh, you mentioned in that column that uh, the statement from the prime minister says that this has been caught early. And so, of course, we hope that the, the treatment is uh, is successful. But uh, it gave you an opportunity to kind of uh, talk, uh, talk a bit about uh, our relationship with Britain and, uh, and, in a sense, the role that the monarchy plays in that uh, relationship. Tell us more about what this news about King Charles kind of prompted uh, in terms of your own thinking. Well, it was announced, as you indicated, but the palace was low-key about it, and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was as well. It reflects implicitly the um, tremendous emotional role of the monarchy. And there is a significant political role still, even though most people aren't aware of that, especially in this country. And we're very interested in the British monarchy as well. So he, the king has made a point of appearing in public. Uh, He's undergoing chemotherapy, but they are continuing with news updates and uh, emphasizing that he's well. Hmm. The um, British people are heavily invested emotionally in the monarchy. And after um, great turmoil and some experimentation with... um, um, authoritarian military rule, unusual for them, and then a brief republic way back in the 1600s after they beheaded um, an earlier Charles, Charles I. He did get a trial, but it was a very turbulent time for them, and that still resonates in their history. Hmm. So they're grateful for the stability or relative stability that the current monarchy provides. Yeah, it's very important for them. At the end of the 1600s, specifically 1688, they imported a new royal family. This waved goodbye to the Stuarts and James II, and um, the Windsors have been around ever since, I Mm -hmm. believe. Mm -hmm. One thing you spelled out in your column that I appreciate, and this is the kind of thing that 
I mean, I sort of knew about, but uh, I, I liked the way you, you spelled it out, was this distinction between efficient functions and dignified <clears throat> functions, which helps kind of explain what you describe elsewhere in the column as the subtly complementary roles of the Crown and Parliament. Yes, welcome to Political Science 201, <laughs> after 101, American government. Right. Walter Badgett, B-A-G-E-H-O-T. It's worth uh, reading about him and oh, yeah, you things cite that, that he book. wrote. Yeah. Yes, the English Constitution, which came out in 1867. He was the longtime editor of The Economist, a weekly which is still going strong. Uh, it's not just about economics and business, and it's well worth reading. Their coverage of American affairs is always... Uh, it's often off off key from my point of view, but um, as an American, but it's very very insightful. Partly for that reason, mm-hmm. um, a long time editor, the Economist, a serious student of politics and as well as the economy and commerce. Um, dignified functions, that's the monarchy. Efficient functions, that's the government, and the emotional uh, dimensions of politics. It works very well because the emotional dimensions are concentrated in the now relatively uh, marginal but still fundamental monarchy, whereas the government does the business of government. <laughs> After a general election, the um, prime minister is out. There's a remarkably ruthless quality about British politics. Uh, there's no long transition period if... Um, the ruling party, governing party, loses the general election. The next day, the moving vans are up at number 10, and prime minister <laughs> and family are out. Um, in uh, parliamentary elections, the candidates for two parties, and increasingly a third or fourth party, are right there, now on TV, on the Internet, as the, as the results are announced. Hmm. It's a uh, cold water system. <laughs> Unlike so. us. Right. And, right. of course, we don't have that distinction, which is yeah. one reason we pay so much attention to the royals. Mm, absolutely. Well, in another column, you, uh, you, you say, I think, quite rightly that while we have uh, a perpetual fascination uh, with Britain and with, with understandable reason, uh, we tend not to pay significant or sufficient attention to the continent of Africa. And uh, in a very recent column... Uh, you talk about Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken's visit to uh, the continent of Africa. You called it a sensible and productive visit. And uh, But I like the line uh, elsewhere in the column where you say, historically, Americans have been absent-minded about Africa. And it really is a shame because it's such a large and and diverse and important continent. And we're not we have historically not paid attention to it uh, the way we should. Uh, yes, uh, in fairness to us the, and our leaders, that did change, I believe, starting with the Clinton administration. And uh, President Clinton, like all politicians, uh, seems to like public attention a lot. He became <laughs> really? a rock star, not only in office, but after leaving. A very, very popular figure in Africa. And... Um, uh, the former president and uh, first lady's Clinton Foundation has been very active in serious economic development work, and, uh, social and medical health problems in Africa. Likewise, President George W. Bush, to his credit, 
um, as the AIDS pandemic became very serious in Africa. He developed, he devoted a lot of focused attention and a fair amount of U.S. aid money to Africa. So it shows that we're paying more attention and um, also that foreign aid is steadily less controversial for all the concerns, broadly speaking, about our involvement in the world at large. And uh, Trump, in many ways, personifies that. The um, international commitment is no longer... Foreign aid used to be enormously controversial. Mm. But before recent times, uh, the only presidents who were distinctive for attention to Africa were uh, John F. Kennedy and Jimmy Carter. Kennedy was chairman of the African Affairs Subcommittee of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he was notorious for not being president in the Senate. He was campaigning uh, full time and a half for the White House from the time he was first elected to Congress. And as as we know now, he also had very serious health problems, which could be in extraordinarily incapacitating uh, throughout his life. And uh, one responsibility. He was always there for meetings of the African Affairs Subcommittee. Francis Wilcox, a very fine gentleman who was the Republican staff director for foreign relations for a long time, is quite fond of Kennedy and um, a, a less partisan time. But uh, personalities have a way of transcending differences at any time. Anyway, Fran uh, spoke quite warmly to me. I got to know him many years ago through work at the Ford Foundation, and he uh, was quite impressed by the fact that JFK was always there and always did his homework. Hmm. And Jimmy Carter, of course, both as president and since, there were some brutal, very, very ugly wars going on in Africa in the 70s, and Carter inevitably was involved with that challenging activity. Hmm. Uh, And the Soviet Union was very present in Africa. It was during a time was really true throughout the Cold War when um, the Soviet Union and China seemed to be making great inroads. There was very, very ugly fighting in Angola, among other places. So Carter was inevitably drawn in, and his Christian missionary spirit has been a great fuel since. The Carter Foundation, again, has been very active in Africa. Guinea worm, a devastating, horrible disease, an agonizing affliction, an agonizing way to die. Guinea worm has been pretty much abolished, eradicated. Mm. It was concentrated in Africa. And uh, Carter and his people were very skillful in drawing attention to it, providing some vital initial aid, and then leveraging support from uh, U.S. foreign aid, AID, and the World Health Organization and World Bank to literally eradicate guinea worm wow. in Africa, mm. like the eradication of polio. More broadly, it's just a phenomenal achievement that, again, is not much publicized. You're right. You're absolutely yeah. right about that. Uh, speaking they say you still find a very condescending attitude toward Carter um, in, in the media generally and people, not just really partisan, you know, beady-eyed Republicans, if I may <laughs> say. And it's quite unfair mm-hmm. in my view. Right. There was an American Experience documentary about Jimmy Carter within the last couple of years oh, that great. really tried to set the record straight in a sense. I mean, not suggesting that he did everything right, but but really trying to bring clarity to, to what he actually managed to accomplish for all the ways in which maybe he struggled as president. He also 
accomplished a great deal, and uh, and I appreciated the, the how, that documentary and appreciated the opportunity to speak with its director. So uh, I, th- I think yes, he is someone we're we're thinking about maybe in different terms than we once did. Yes, I think he'll be very durable yeah. as president, along with George H. W. Bush, and I believe uh, Richard Nixon. Hmm. Uh, Carter, uh, this this. It should be of interest, I hope, to more than me. I spent a few months in uh, the early 1970s at Fort Benning, Georgia, going through the infantry officer's school. Uh, my branch was, in the Army was intelligence, but the, that uh, you had to get through that ordeal, among other things. And uh, it was a tough time for the country, a tough time for me in the latter stages of the Vietnam War. Uh, Richard Russell, a very significant outside of race relations, very positive force in the U.S. Senate had just died, close ally of Lyndon Johnson, and all the positive things that LBJ did. And um, Sam Nunn had not yet been elected to intelligent, impressive senators, so it was uh, a pretty desolate area politically and pretty ugly. The Klan was recruiting on... Army bases. They had a big billboard right off the um, right off post at Benning. You couldn't miss it. Wow! And uh, a, a very different time from today. But um, uh, there wasn't a whole lot to do at Benning unless you were really in device. And um, Jimmy Carter, I found a real uh, breath of fresh air, educational force. The governor of Georgia was so incredibly well-informed and articulate. I became a big Jimmy Carter. I used to watch a lot of TV in my Mm. rare off hours. And Carter really came across powerfully, and I was very sorry that he ran into so much trouble. He ran into the Washington buzzsaw. Mm. Uh, Being governor of Georgia, one-term governor doesn't, it's not great experience for dealing with D.C. But that's when I became impressed by him, and I've supported him enthusiastically, and I'm glad that he's getting at long last some credit that he deserves. Right, very, very much. Yeah, just uh, in person, um, we had him visit. We were able to get him to visit Chicago, and I we worked on this for years at the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations, as is the case with any other prominent leader, when you're not willing to pay a gigantic honorarium. In his case, it went to the Carter Center, but the way the Carter Center developed over just with huge determination over a period of years. And the loyalty of his staff, you get to know the right hand. Everybody's got a a key guy, the go-to guy, the woman or man. In uh, his case, it was Andrew Young. And I got to know him fairly well. It was nice to be back in Atlanta for more positive reasons. And uh, there's... There's still, I think, a lot to be said on the positive side about Carter and his life overall and his wife. Yeah. One of the things that has always impressed me about uh, uh, Jimmy Carter is the fact that although he was, there's maybe never been a U.S. president who was more devoted to his own religious faith. Yes. That nevertheless, he took incredibly great pains to separate church and state and that never wanted to do anything as president that would somehow bring advantage to to his own 
religion and religious faith uh, to the detriment of, of other religious faiths. He wanted there to be room for everybody. And oh, yeah. it's not often that you find someone who is that that devoted to their own religion, who is nevertheless able to, to make room for others of very, very different beliefs. Uh, that's always impressed me a lot about him. Fair point. Uh, on the other hand, after meetings with my, um, my understanding is after meetings with uh, the guys from Congress, and it was a, a much more of a male institution then, as uh, Tip O'Neill and Bob Dole were leaving, and worldly politicians, all the president would say, remember, I shall pray for you. <laughs> and I'm sure he <laughs> <Didn't>, did. <laughs> yeah, it didn't always go over that well. Fair enough. <laughs> let's return. Let's uh, that's good. Let's return to Africa for one one other point. Of course, and we'll move on. Uh, something else I, I learned from this column is, the, the, I think, a very very important point. Again, something that we as Americans don't seem to pay a lot of attention to, and that is the fact that China has paid so much attention to the continent of Africa in yes. recent years, and in some ways, we are now in a I suppose one could say maybe playing catch-up. How would you characterize China's interest in Africa? I mean, what kinds of things are they doing in Africa? Well, first of all, it's deeply rooted. 58, 59, 1958, 9, was the beginning of the Sino-Soviet rift. Mm. A very serious um, division, ideological, which of course was central to the communists, and also practical, lots of reasons all kinds of frictions and um, that dated back to Stalin and Mao and the revolutions, victory in 49. And um, Harrison Salisbury, a very influential, serious, impressive journalist for the New York Times, wrote predicting a war between China and the Soviet Union. Mm. It was that serious and that was plausible then. Wow. Totally forgotten today as far as I can tell. Anyway, um, China started emphasizing we are the non-white, the poor non-white peoples. The Soviets are revisionists and many, many sins. And um, there was tremendous drama at the time as Fidel Castro in Cuba moved totally into the Soviet orbit, leading finally to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, the Soviet Union was making, Soviet communism was making inroads into Latin America, um, including close cooperation um, between East Germany and Chile, an odd, hmm. uh, an odd marriage of uh, historical fascism and contemporary communism. But it was serious, and unlike today, that seemed to be the future to a lot of people. We had to oppose it, and we went to extreme lengths to try to do so back then. Uh, the the um, uh, the party line from Beijing was, we are focused on Africa, we are focused on the non-white people. Uh, Africans had serious problems with, uh, sometimes really ugly problems with racism when they wound up spending a year in Moscow or elsewhere in the USSR, and Beijing tried to exploit that, that very bitter time. So they're deeply rooted in Africa. Um, construction projects, development projects, personal ties that date back half a century. 
Uh, to give you a direct answer currently to your question, the Belt and Road Initiative involves a lot of public works projects in um, Africa. There's been, there is a very significant downside in the sense that Beijing seems to be a pretty uh, ruthless kind of capitalist in terms of operating in the world. Um, gener- loans that are initially generous but have uh, very harsh conditions in terms long-term, fine print that um, fairly unsophisticated um, people don't necessarily read in detail. So uh, a, a universal phenomenon. But um, Beijing has been particularly uh, ruthless, cruel, and short-sighted in their approach to the Belt and Road Initiative. It's also been a lot of shoddy work, workmanship. So there is an opportunity here, which um, we seem to be sensibly taking advantage of with our relevant allies in terms of gaining ground in Africa, Mm. not just fighting terrorists, which is very much in the news and is a serious challenge post-communist, but also um, there's a lot of growing solid investment in Africa. It is the great growth area of the world. For those of you just joining us, I'm... Uh, Excuse me, ec- economic growth, economic growth right, in right. Africa today, beyond extraction industries and the usual mm-hmm. uh, traditional historic reasons why people invested in Africa. Right. For those of you just joining us, I'm really pleased to be speaking once again today with Dr. Art Sear, a frequent guest to the morning show for uh, more than two decades now, and it's great to be... Uh, talking with him about uh, several of his most recent columns, including one that talked about NATO. And I did the math and realized NATO is 75 years old today, having been uh, founded back in uh, 1949. Almost as old as President Biden. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And uh, so one of the things, of course, that has happened there is uh, that Sweden has joined NATO. And uh, you were explaining in, in this column about how the big roadblock uh, for that entry of Sweden into NATO, it's been the nation of Turkey. And, of course, I think at a glance that wouldn't make a lot of sense uh, to most people. What does Turkey have to do with Sweden, and what would the Turks' beef be with Sweden? But it sounds like it's been a really serious dispute for some time now. Could you uh, explain to our listeners what that dispute has sort of been about and maybe a little bit about how it's ultimately been resolved? Yes, there's an ethnic minority, the Kurds, who are are a distinctive population. They transcend borders in um, that part of the world. And there is an extremist dimension, the Kurdish separatism, that is uh, a serious challenge to the government of Turkey and also others. The um, uh, Swedish government... There are, there are residents in Sweden who represent um, great opposition to Turkey and its increasingly autocratic leader. Uh, he was president, then he became prime I think he was prime minister, prime president, Erdogan. Uh, largely ceremonial office until he, uh, of necessity, he had to find a new office at the top, so he became president, and it's now a very powerful office. Um, he tends to be pretty rigid and inflexible and has been able to get away with it. And he focused on Sweden as a, um, as a thorn in the side and a real threat to the government. So it's quite an accomplishment. 
And um, I believe here, as elsewhere, including in Africa and the Middle East, Secretary of State Blinken, Anthony Blinken, deserves a lot of credit for, uh, speaking of Carter, relentless, hard-working diplomacy outside the headlines. Mm. And finally, Erdogan, after much persuasion, and I'm, I'm sure the U.S. government offered him some real carrots, uh, dropped his opposition. So both Sweden and Finland, Finland had never had a problem with Turkey, but two neutral nations. Uh, it's a real slap in the face to President Putin mm. and his uh, allies. It really is significant. They've joined NATO. Mm. Well, I was just about to ask you what to, to characterize the significance of Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Uh, well, it greatly extends. Poland is also a member of NATO. It's part of the expansion of the East that began in a, aggressively during the Clinton administration. Uh, Finland has a large border with the Soviet Union. There's a bitter history between um, Russia and Finland going back a long, long time. But just to focus on World War II, mm. the Soviet Union, when Stalin and Hitler were allies at the beginning of World War II, and the West was in big trouble. Um, the Soviet USSR invaded Finland, and these small but very skillful uh, and very mobile Finnish army fought the Red Army to a standstill. It was a negotiated settlement, which tragically forced the Finns into alliance with the Third Reich. <coughs> so it's a bitter heritage, and um, they, they really gave Stalin and the Soviets a bloody nose. Uh, that's important subtext. So they're now in NATO of necessity because they were right next to uh, the Russian bear. They avoided that kind. They were formally neutral, but very pro-Western. Sweden is different. They've been rather sanctimoniously neutral in <laughs> modern times, going back well well before uh, World War II. I think it's a, it's a rather... Um, uh, I, I have rather strong views on the subject. It's a, it's a rather pragmatic, though sanctimonious neutrality mm. during the uh, the cynical s statement during World War II is it took um, what is it? It took a month for the uh, Wehrmacht to con conquer Norway, a week to conquer Denmark, and a phone call to conquer Sweden. <laughs> very active, very profitable. Uh, very profitable collaboration with the Third Reich. Mm. During the Vietnam War, Sweden welcomed uh, military deserters. And uh, there were countries that gave refuge to U.S. draft debaters, very understandably, especially Canada. Deserters were a very different population from draft resistors. It was basically a criminal element, and um, there, was no, uh, there was no shortage of satisfaction I can assure you, in the Pentagon and Washington generally, when Sweden, after self-righteously taking this stand, found itself with a very violent crime wave in the 70s. Mm. So very much a different kind of neutralism. And there again, it's a major, major accomplishment for NATO that Sweden has joined the alliance. And in your column, you mentioned that, that the, this emergence of Russia under Vladimir Putin as a really aggressive, ominous threat has had the effect very much of re-energizing NATO and, yeah. and the alliance. I mean, it is uh, a still more 
potent threat, and it's just not that it's been around for 75 years, but now is as, you know, in some ways maybe as important as it's ever been. Well, it's um, we all age. I'm certainly mindful of that, and bureaucracies do too. Right. And NATO was much criticized for being um, having all all the downsides of modern industrial militaries, uh, and it, it has been a shot in the arm. I think emotionally and politically, uh, it's important to keep in mind, given the fact that uh, we emphasize Russia as a threat collectively, especially in the media that Russia historically has been very cautious about expanding their borders in any direction, as has China. I'm not justifying the invasion of one country by another today. Uh, Russia invading Ukraine, that actually hasn't happened very often since World War II, and that's great. Uh, however, I do believe we overdo the idea of Russia as a strategic security threat to the West. Mm. I was very much against moving NATO for what, what it's worth. I think it was a big strategic mistake for us to aggressively move NATO right up to the borders of Russia. And it is understandable, if not defensible, that Putin has taken the steps he did, culminating yeah, now in the invasion of Ukraine. Right. But, uh, Speaking of threat, I mean, yeah. he took that as a, a threat. Yeah, there's an historical paranoia right. in Russia that it's very difficult, if not impossible, I believe, for Americans to understand. Hmm. Yeah. Let's move to the Middle East. Okay. I, I, I want to be able to, uh, I want to give you a, an opportunity to talk about this phenomenon that, uh, that's been so disturbing of these uh, attacks on Western ships in the, the region of the Red Sea by the Houthis. Uh, first of all, I, th I think this is uh, uh, yet another group that that a lot of uh, of Americans, I count myself among them, don't necessarily you know understand. And of course, that's one complexity about that whole region is these various uh, you know what we think of as at least of as extremist factions and their relationship with 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 one another. But uh, talk for a moment about this particular group and the threat that they posed and our uh, response to it. An Islamic um, fundamentalist movement um, that I think is centered in Yemen, a nation with its own problems, but they and others, including Hamas, much in the news currently, tragically, they're, they're operating as proxies for Iran. Hmm. Iran, again, has gone to great lengths to avoid uh, direct military confrontation with the United States, and we quite wisely have done the same. Um, since the revolution in 1979 overthrew the Shah and brought in a very fundamentalist regime. But that's, that's the motivation, and it's been around since the um, Iran revolution. In the 1980s, the Reagan administration had the same problem, and they reacted forcefully with air and naval power uh, to protect sea lanes, the, uh, there was one tragic incident, the USS Vincennes. Um, a U.S. warship shot down a civilian airliner, an Iran airliner that was um, misidentified as a military aircraft, and we killed um, just under 300 civilians, including many children. And there was later a financial settlement, which the Iran government accepted. Fortunately, 
Nothing like that has happened since, but there's regular sporadic fighting, and the U.S. quite rightly is committed to protecting sea lanes, and we have substantially increased our naval and Marine Corps presence in the region in response to this. So, and as usual, it's, it's actually not that new. I've inherited a course called America at War at the college, which I've really enjoyed teaching, um, and um, it's, it's been working pretty well. I'm very proud of that. Uh, it's uh, forced me to scramble around and do some some homework. You and I were discussing this matter <laughs> off the war, oh, yeah, yeah. and I was reminded of our big problem with the Barbary pilots in the very early days of our republic. The Washington George Washington's administration actually paid them off, paid tribute to keep them from doing what's happening now, that is, interfering wow. with our shipping and cap- capturing and killing our seamen. The Jefferson administration took a much harder line, and we wound up uh, having pretty significant naval action against the um, Barbary pirates based in Tripoli, mm-hmm. I think, on the border of um, Libya, right on the, on, um, Libya, in Libya, right close to the border of Tunisia. Uh, so it's because of shipping and uh, extreme political winds and religious winds historically, it's a big problem area. But it's not new. It's not new. Right. Been around a long time. We Americans tend to think everything is new. (laughs) This is the latest threat. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, and and, uh, there are lessons to be learned from from our history. Yes, of course. If we just pay attention to it. Well, thank you so much. Exactly. (laughs) Let's talk for a moment about the elections that recently took place in uh, in Taiwan. Taiwan has a new president and uh, although it was, you, you tell us in your column, a relatively close election, but nevertheless, uh, yet another uh, presidential victory for the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party. Tell us what this party stands for, particularly uh, when it comes to Taiwan's relations with mainland China. Yes, indeed. They're a relatively new party. The other main party is the KMT, the Kuomintang, which is a very old party and dates back to nationalist China and was the ruling party on the mainland under Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek back in the 30s and 40s. In 1949, uh, the nationalists were forced by the communist victory on the mainland to flee to Taiwan. And um, the KMT was the dominant party. The DPP is a relatively, uh, quite a new party, relatively speaking. It is formally committed to independence. Uh, it represents much more the uh, indigenous Taiwanese population as opposed to the expatriate mainland population. Younger people tend to support the DPP. And they were in government at, uh, shortly after the turn of the century, I believe. Um, First DPP president, President Ma, was a very is a very sophisticated Harvard graduate. Mm. Taiwanese tend to be very very cosmopolitan. A lot of politicians have PhDs, which is uh, you and I like that, but it's <laughs> it's a bit anomalous in the rest of the world. Yeah, right. It's a fascinating, distinctive culture. Interesting. It really is interesting, and I'm I'm glad you brought it up. Anyway, President Mao was the ideal first DPP president because they're formally committed to independence, 
in Beijing has never wavered, formally declaring independence um, will lead to war. Mm. So he was able to finesse that. Um, they came back into power after a KMT interval and um, elected the first woman president of Taiwan. They, as you indicated, the presidential margin was substantially reduced this time around, and they lost control of the legislature. So there'll be a lot of opportunity for compromise and deal-making, and uh, Beijing is already um, rather skillfully, as far as I can tell, started cultivating non-DPP politicians in Taiwan. But there's been no war. Stability has been maintained in Taiwan. Hmm. Do you have anything else you want to say about this woman who was the most recent president? Looks like her name was Tsai Ing-wen. Yes, uh, indeed. President Tsai, um, you're quite right. The first woman president, very um, more outspoken than Mao. But again, they worked things out. And um, the KMT, by contrast, one nation, two systems, they're quite sympathetic to that, and that makes it pretty easy. Has made it pretty easy to collaborate with Beijing. The most important thing is that ongoing and growing trade relations and travel, direct travel between the U.S. and the mainland, has not been interfered with. Mm. They reached a major agreement early in the 21st century for this direct exchange, which was quite revolutionary. Communist Beijing had not been willing to entertain anything like that. Wow. So, and, that, and, and that hasn't changed. So, so basically, one can travel fairly freely between Reason, China and Taiwan? Reasonably freely. Also, you need money for the huge, gigantic industrial revolution that's been taking place on the mainland since um, President Deng Xiaoping announced people's socialism in the early 90s, which means in plain English we're going to be communists, but we've got to face economic reality. Overseas Chinese are a huge source of overseas investment, a lot of which flows through Taiwan. Hmm. Computer expertise, technical expertise, legal, all the things you need to run a major, sophisticated commercial enterprise a lot of that flows from Taiwan. It's the goose that's laying the golden egg for <laughs> the mainland. And as Hong Kong continues to wither on the vine, uh, the Hang Seng Index has been flat, basically, since the stock exchange in Hong Kong has been flat since the heavy hand of Beijing took over in 97. I think that'll encourage them to keep hands off Taiwan. Mm. I don't believe there's going to be another war. But um, they are buying up enterprises. They're trying to buy Taiwan. And speaking of paranoia, that's one of the many things the Taiwanese are understandably fearful of. Right. One of the things you said in this column was that this new president, I mean the fact that uh, Kai Ching Lei or William Lei yeah. was, was elected, yeah. represents sort of a recommitment by Taiwan to equality, fairness, and progress. Yeah. Sounds like three great principles. 
Yeah, much more like our kind of party. And we are closely tied to Taiwan. The Truman administration, President, uh, President Truman sent General Marshall. Speaking of right hand, he was Truman's right hand man for any any like with FDR, anything related to foreign policy and military affairs. Marshall quite rightly told the president the communists were taking over, as everyone, MacArthur, General Ridgeway, every, everyone with any sense has always said, we've got to stay out of a land war on Asia, in Asia. Um, when the Korean War broke out, we sent the Seventh Fleet into the Taiwan Straits. And um, since that time, we've been formally tied to Taiwan strategic considerations outweighed basic military geography. Mm. And um, it was directly associated with the defense of South Korea. Uh, I believe strongly that that time period was instrumental <coughs> in our getting involved in a big way in a conventional war on the landmass of Asia, which all smart people had said for decades, don't do this um, in the 1960s. Yeah. Speaking of that part of the world, uh, at some point uh, during January, uh, North Korea was added again. Oh, with yeah. Some provocative uh, activities and statements and uh, shooting off missiles and so on. Uh, rather sort of typical scare tactics, if you will, from from North Korea. And one of the things you, you talk about in this column about that uh, is – is how what what really is the most significant thing is how those those kind of stories tend to completely overshadow what is the most important story, which is of South Korea's um, abundance and uh, and and uh, and continuing strength. I mean, it's it is one of the most astonishing success stories. Uh, on the planet, yeah, and yet uh, what grabs the headlines again and again is is what their neighbor to the north uh, tends to do. Tell us more about that. Well, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, since 1986, South Korea, like um, Taiwan, has been a representative democracy. It's a pretty wild political system, as as uh, is Korean society generally. Uh, compared to, say, China or Japan. I'm a great admirer of um, the South Koreans' success. They are f extremely closely committed to the U.S. Mm -hmm. They um, uh, maintained 50,000 troops in South Vietnam during our long war there. They were almost all combat troops. Mind you, they um, engaged in activities that are clearly criminal, in terms of international law and in the U.S. military, you'd go to prison for doing some of the things that they did routinely. Uh, but the North Vietnamese went to great lengths to avoid contact with them. Um, landmines and booby traps and snipers were the main source of U.S. casualties in South Korea. In South Vietnam, uh, whenever the ROC Army ROK Army, Republic of Korea, encountered these problems, they would fan out and uh, find the nearest village and destroy it completely. Mm. 
and kill all the males above a certain age, and they'd spare the women uh, and girls, although they would um, abuse them, and they'd kill all the livestock and destroy everything, plant mm-hmm. the Korean flag and move on. Wow. They had almost no trouble with booby traps, landmines, snipers, or anything else, and it is war, and war is horrible. Mm. The main thing is all these Korean warriors were doing it because of affinity for the U.S. We paid them a lot of money. The Johnson administration paid um, very substantial support, which went into the pockets of General Park Chung-hee and his cronies, but the average soldier was just... And I uh, had the honor of meeting... South Korean soldiers. Um, not in. I did not do a combat tour in Vietnam, although I've been there. I um, met them in the U.S. and they're just phenomenal soldiers. So I have. Uh, I, we should remain very mindful of our affinity for South Korea. Mm. And in the meantime, in cor- of course, and, and their affinity for us, right. And then, of course, in the meantime, as just kind of an economic power, I mean, what they lack in square miles, they more than make up for just in terms of innovation and all that they've done to remain such a, a robust presence on the uh, world stage. Yeah, you right. I apologize for digressing like that. You were asking about the economy. North Korea was ahead of South Korea. They were both, both peasant societies. North Korea had the minerals, though, and the natural resources, and generally their economy was considered stronger, just as South Vietnam's economy was notably stronger than the North, and that's still the center of commercial activity. Hmm. But it's been totally reversed. It shows the heavy uh, dead hand of communism and dictatorship and what freedom can do hmm. with a very talented population. Right. That's very well put. And with that, we have to draw this uh, conversation to a close. But uh, I am really glad that we got to touch on a lot of really interesting things today. Uh, As always, it's been great to to, to talk with you, Dr. Artsir. And uh, we look forward to uh, you uh, visiting us in March to uh, share more expertise. Uh, South Korea transcends the boundary between developed and developing nations. A very successful Secretary General of the U.N., uh, was a South Korean fairly recently, a tremendous mm-hmm. ally for us in lots of different parts of the world. Yeah. Well, it's nice to be invited back. I, I'm not always invited back, Greg. It's <laughs> nice of you to invite me back. Glad to have you here always. Dr. Artsir, thank you again for today's conversation.